Attention, citizens, it's time for Super Pulp Science. Welcome to Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. Producer Dan here. Today's episode is a little bit different. We don't have a new, uh, newly recorded episode for you today. Uh, we're still on holiday break. Uh, Gregory, Justin, and Samantha are taking some well-deserved time off. We will be back next week with a new, freshly recorded episode, as per usual. However, today uh, we have um, a talk. Uh, a few weeks ago, I would say maybe maybe a month and a half ago, sometime in November, because uh, they talk about NaNoWriMo, uh, Gregory went to visit the class of Dr. Jonathan Ball, who's been on this podcast before, and talked to the students at the University of Winnipeg about writing, about his career as a writer and an artist, uh, about the publishing industry. It's just a great kind of Q&A, a great talk about just if you're interested in getting into the writing industry and what you should do. So here you go, Gregory Kamichuk. Dr. Jonathan Ball and his students. Until next time, join the fight and make comics. How we were each struggling to schedule this time to write these novels that we were you know separately working on and it struck me that if it was the same sort of conversation that I had with you maybe 15 years ago and you know my question is I think if somebody were to overhear a conversation like that they would have the question of like well wait a second isn't this guy a full-time artist and author now like isn't shouldn't this be easy like hasn't he made it Right. Um, why are you still struggling to you know schedule time to write these books when when your job is to write books? Because yeah, we all have the same amount. Of haven't time. you made it, Greg? Aren't, oh yeah, haven't you totally. broken through? Yeah, totally. Welcome to uh, you sold tens of thousands. We of books. made it um, with your hosts Gregory and Jonathan. Um, no, uh, okay. So the analogy, what prompted this whole conversation is he asked how things are going and how I'm balancing things, and I described the process of writing and illustrating as a full-time job uh, in the following way. Imagine that uh, you are alone in a rowboat and the far shore is some point in your career that you are trying to reach. Now the rowboat that you have undertaken to row across the lake and you realize halfway, maybe a quarter of the way into the journey, has a number of holes in it that cannot be patched. So you're going to drown for sure. You can, you can row as fast as you want, but eventually the boat is going to sink. But you have a pail in the boat with you, so you can stop rowing to bail. But you can't do both at the same time. So you can race for the shore as much as you can as the boat slowly fills up with water, and then you stop and you try to bail it out until it's light enough to row again. Now, some of you might say, well, you could try rowing and bailing at the same time. But if you did that, you're just going in circles, right? And so. In this analogy, the rowboat is the effort it takes to try and reach some point in your career, and the water coming in is what everyone else expects from you, right? All the time and energy and effort that you must dish out to people, right? The relationships in your lives take time. The relationship with your publishers take time. The relationship to build a fan base takes time. All of that you're bailing, but you're not getting anywhere while you're doing it. So if you have to spend a whole day answering emails, you're now a professional email answerer, but you're not in fact a writer. 
And if you spend all day traveling, well, yeah, it's great to be a traveler, but you actually haven't produced any work then either. So it just becomes this sort of intense push-pull. The more There are troubles with success, which nobody wants to hear when they wish for that success. But the truth is, we all have the same number of hours in the day, and we have to divide them up so that we can get things done. I always tell people, nobody wants you to write. Like the, pro the hardest thing with being a writer is nobody wants you to write. Even your publisher doesn't want you to write. No. They wish you would just get finish that writing already. So you could tour with the book. Yes. You know, yeah. so like the action, and your family doesn't want you to write. Even no. if they're supportive, they don't yeah. actually want you to write. They want you to have done that so they can support how you did it. Yeah. Like, uh, like the actual like time when you're like sitting in a, a desk or and doing the, th and whether it's writing or you know painting or whatever it is, um, like even when people are being supportive of it, they, they actually like don't truly understand how they're not being supportive of it. You know, in, in the sense of like, um, like the, they have an expectation of you. Like if you, even if you're just home all day, you have an office elsewhere. Yeah, well, I there's another know, thing that there's happens. There's lots of reasons for that, but one reason probably is people would bother you at home. <laughs> well, yes not, and not no. Your, do you know what I mean? Like, my art practice is a sprawling monster that takes over rooms with mess, so it's better that I contain it in a studio space so that my family has a place to live. Um, but no, more practically than that, I think that um, when we're undertaking to make things, you know, as our job, the people in our lives, um, or maybe I'll back it up, when we're young, and we're spending time writing or drawing or doodling or doing anything creative, people try to talk us out of it as a career. The moment you have some indicator of success, everyone who tried to talk you out of it for your whole life is now telling all of, your, all of their friends that they've known you for so long and you were always like that. And Oh, wow, isn't it great because you're one of their friends. Uh, and it's a, it's a tough position to be in to, be, to know that people will not validate you until others do. And by the time others do, you no longer require the validation of the people closest to you. It is a hard paradox as a creative person, for sure. So this, this kind of feeds into a different question that a lot of people had, which is uh, sort of two questions. Like, what was your greatest challenge as a writer or slash you know, artist now versus starting out? Like, when you're trying to establish yourself, like, what was your kind of greatest challenge then? And how'd you get over it? And what's your greatest challenge now? And, and how are you trying to get over it? Um, I think those challenges are the same from day one till day whatever, a thousand that this is. Um, you are constantly seeing yourself as an imposter in your own life. You're constantly asking yourself, is the labor that I've done worthwhile? Will anyone get it? Will they understand? Will they connect to it? And if they don't, then what was the point of it? And if they do, will I be stuck making more of this? Because now that I've made it, I'm done with it. I want to do something else. Um, those are the same from day one till day to day, literally. So does it, does it get easier then? Because, because people, when I talk to people, they have an assumption that at a certain point it's easy. And at a certain point you stop getting rejections from people. And I always point out that, I remember once reading a short story book by Stephen King and in the back he has all these little notes about the short stories and when they were written and where they were published originally and so on. And he mentioned at one of, and this is one of his more recent books, like maybe five, six years ago, I, I remember like reading a story notes and it was like, this story was rejected by, and I'm like, Stephen King is getting rejections now. Right. You know, now that he's one of the most famous authors in the world, 
Right. Uh, he's still getting rejected. So I think the big misconception about making stuff up and writing it down is that it's hard. Guys, it's not hard to make up a bunch of stuff and write it down, right? The hard part is the business side of it, right? Figuring out how best to have your work represent you. That's an entirely different animal than making things. All of you are capable of making something just as good as any of the books I've published. And probably many of you much better than the work I've done. The only difference is that I have some experience in getting my work into the room. And people don't like to hear that as a truth of publishing, but that is a truth of publishing. They're, making stuff up is easy. Writing a book isn't the hard part. Writing a book is the easy part. That's the part you can do without anybody's input. All the other steps require people's input. So even Stephen King, who is getting rejected, he's getting rejected because that story is being sent to a collection or an anthology where the editor reads it and has to weigh, well, okay, Stephen King's name is something, but this story doesn't actually match our purpose of tell you, publishing this book. Let me tell you the precise example. Okay. <laughs> so it was a story Stephen King wrote about a guy being trapped in, in a portable toilet. And he sent it to the New Yorker. <laughs> right there you go <laughs> and like yes he's Stephen King but like literally the guy has to tunnel into the you know cesspool and out of the like like swimming through the film why is there part of me that believes Stephen King would have sent that to New Yorker as a like almost as a gag like if that's... I remember right I might be misconfusing but it was something along yeah. those lines it was that story though for sure yeah see um Someone has summed it up at the bottom of whatever it that rumor is there. It just it sucks, right? It just it sucks. That part of the job just sucks. But no matter what job you have, there's some part of it that's no good. Has the entire faculty been commuted? Almost. What about the students? Soon. I think the hard thing about writing, in many respects, is getting over yourself and doing it. Oh yeah, and absolutely. like of course, like producing quality is you know is a difficult thing in a certain level. But I think the quantity is the harder thing for most people. Absolutely, yeah. You're panning for gold is what you're doing. So you have to go through a lot of gravel to find those. Uh, you're doing NaNoWriMo. Yeah. Right, and so am I. So for those of you who don't know, November is National Novel Writing Month, and so uh, writers and non-writers and anyone who wants to can endeavor to try to write 50,000 words in 30 days, right? So, yeah, you, but that's not very much, right? It's like if you did 2,000 words a day, you have five days off, right? Now, 2,000 words, to just put in perspective people who don't write a lot of words necessarily. It's four it, pages. It, it, it is hard and easy. Like, it, it's not actually, like I've written 2,000 words in an hour. Yeah. I've had other days where like 2,000 words takes me all day. Yeah, right. You know, but it, but that's it, not it depends, the that's right? not the words. Good fault. words that's your is not fault. that hard. Yeah, or, or good words is not that. No, good words are hard. Good words are hard. Words, but, are but any easy. words. Like the point yeah. is, it's any words. Yeah. So to write is human, but to edit is divine. So you just want to like the purpose of um, you know National Novel Writing Month is to remind people that the practice of writing is actually easy, and the construction of a novel is actually hard. Right? It's easy to get 50,000 words, and when you're done, you have this pile of stuff in front of you, and you go, okay, well, is there a story worth reading in here? And if you're lucky, you can edit out 20,000 words and be left with a 30,000-word novella that's of substance. That's my goal. 
hopefully that's your goal. You're ahead of me right I mean, now currently. I also find personally like fiction harder to write than nonfiction. Like, like I have written a, a whole nonfiction book in a month. Right. Like my, my nonfiction book was written, the first draft was written in a month. Right. That's an academic peer reviewed book. Right. You know, like, so there's like high quality. Now was that because that. you only had a month to do it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I did it in a coffee shop. Right. Basically. You just have to do it every day. Yeah. yeah it's because I had a deadline. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't a publishable draft. But it was close enough to it could pass. It passed peer review, and then they recommended certain changes. But I knew already they could. I'm going to need to do these changes because I don't have time. Okay, I want to ask: Is there anybody in this room participating in NaNoWriMo? Is there anyone in this room who writes every day? Oh yes. Uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I write for fun. It's not really like a, a job. I want it to be. A job. I also write for fun. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but like, um, I, I, I really enjoy writing, and I like, I, I'm always like thinking of different fictional stories to come up with. So um, I do understand the struggle of uh, uh, like coming up with something good, but it's also really easy to just like put words on a page. And good is relative. Right, so I could hand out a story. Actually, we did. We could hand out one of my stories, and some of you would find it good, and some of you would find it trite, and some of you would find it drivel, and some of you would find it amateurish, and some of you would find it brilliant. Possibly in equal measure, well, right? Also, it's it's like a, uh, a lot of writers usually are their own worst critics. Like they'll write something and they'll just be like, "This is horrible." And then they'll show it to someone else and they'll read it and they'll be like, what are you talking about? This is amazing. Yeah, while you're making it, you think you're a genius. And as soon as it's finished, you're sure that it's terrible. Right? Yeah. That's just, that's just, but that's not up to you. Whether it's good or bad is not up to you. It's up to the people you submit it to. And though, though that submission is based on a particular agent or often intern going through a slush pile, whether they had coffee before they read it, or after could be the difference between they passed it up the stream to the editor, right? Because they were alert enough to get what you were really trying to do or not. What's the most interesting rejection that you received? Uh, most interesting rejection? Mine was a, 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 yeah, I have a few. somebody had requested I submit a story to them. <laughs> I submitted it. No, no, and no, then they sent me a re form rejection letter, but it had a handwritten note on the bottom. And the handwritten note said, sorry, I love this story, but everyone else hated it. Nice. Um, so there are different kinds of rejections. Uh, editorial rejections where like, no, this story doesn't fit. And then there's like fan rejections. We were talking about this one yesterday a little bit, where I had a book that came out early on in my you know career. I'm hanging air quotes over this uh, as a writer called The Imagination Manifesto. And it was a collection of all these different stories. And you know, 80% of the content had female lead characters in it. And somebody came up to my table at a convention and started yelling at me. Like their rejection was of the way I approach comics. Women do not have a place in comics. They don't have a place as a character and you should know better as a man than to write women into comics. And I'm just like, don't know what's happening, right? But they're holding the book and I, for the first time ever, I realized that they had bought the book. They had read the book. And having done both of those things, they were actually entitled to their opinion whether I agreed with it or not. Like, they had everything that they needed to have done in order to be mad at me. They didn't like its content, they had bought it, and they had read its content, so fine. So I listened, I told them that exact thing. I said, listen, you read it, you paid for it, I disagree with you entirely, but they just kept going on and on and getting more and more angry to the point where I just said, excuse me, sir, like, I need to ask you to leave. 
because clearly you don't want anything from me except to be mad. And he's like, no, no, I do want something. I was like, what are you here for? I'm here for the next book in the series. <laughs> right? So uh, these rejections that you get sometimes are the kind where you're trying to get in the door, right? Please just let me in so that I can break through and publish something. And the rejections you get after it's out are far more bizarre, right? Because of the entitlement of the reader. So how does it feel to... To, one of the core questions a number of people have is like, how does it feel to connect with an audience? How do you deal with criticism? Like, if you get a bad review, for example, do you read them? I don't. How do you respond? And you know, you don't respond, of course. But like, in, to, in, personally, how do you respond? So, um, just like a year or two ago, I found out about Goodreads. <laughs> like somebody was like, "Hey, yeah, I left a review for you on Goodreads." I was like, "On what?" And they're like, "Yeah, Goodreads. It's like you know, people review books all the time." I was like, oh no, there's a place where people, oh no. So um, yeah, I, I'm interested in engaging with individuals about the work. And because I do 20 to 25 conventions or um, you know, show appearances a year, I have access to and talk with, on a yearly basis, thousands of people who have engaged with the work one-on-one, face-to-face, five or 10 minutes at a time. Those are the only reviews I'm interested in. I, originally, when I started working on Apocrypha, I was like, oh, I'll make a Reddit account and I'll go onto Reddit because there's a big community talking about the book. And then I saw that someone is like, yeah, he has a wife and a kids and here's some pictures of them. And here's the, and I was like, whoa, I'm out of here. This is messed up. But it's not. It's just how people connect to things. And I have social media and I did put those pictures out there. And what did I think was going to happen? Right? So I disengage with the review process except on a one-to-one level because on a one-to-one level if someone like really dislikes something and they have a strong reason for it and they took the time to come and see me about it I'm not it's not my job to change their mind it's merely to listen and if if I can if they're if I think their criticism is valid I simply say well I agree with that criticism I actually tried to do better in this work on that particular point or no, I don't think you should read any of my other stuff because I pretty much, that's me in a nutshell, right? Isn't it better as a writer to get uh, uh, like negative criticism than no criticism at all? Uh, so, yes, but I'll quantify that. The way the Amazon system works is 50 reviews is super good for you. If you can get 50 reviews, the discoverability of your book goes through the roof whether they're good or bad, right? Because the assumption is that someone has bought the book and they're buying the book and sometimes, like Fifty Shades of Grey has thousands of bad reviews but millions of sale copies, right? So whether you love it or hate it, yes, it's true that discoverability goes up even if you hate it. But I don't think there's anyone in this room that would like to be known for being hated, right? So. I don't mind it. Like, I, I, <laughs> I, yeah, I, as a university that, professor, you're qualified. No, no, I'm just, not that I'm hated, but like, I, I recommend to in my career writing classes, I, I say to people like, you can't be somebody's favorite band unless you're somebody's least favorite band. And so I recommend people divide the audience as quickly as possible. Like, do whatever you can to divide an audience, rather than trying to um, uh, like please everybody. Look, all fiction is based on some truth, right? What does Miss Berg teach us in English 101? Write what you know. You have very unique visual style, and it's it's the kind of style that is tailored. You're probably not thinking this when you're doing it, but it's the kind of style that is like constructed 
in a way that some people are going to love it and other people will just hate it so much. That's absolutely true. Yeah. And there's not going to be yeah. a lot of in between. And yeah. I think that's the position. I personally think that's the position people. Yeah. I sometimes be in. get like, you know, those one to one reviews where it's like, oh man, I really like the story. I wish you could draw. <laughs> right? Because I usually buy books for the art. You know, I kind of stuck around for the story. But I don't know if I'll buy the next one. And I'm like, why don't I just color over? I'll just scratch out all the art and just leave the story for you. Would you buy it then? So, yeah. Did you ever have, though, when you were you know, younger, and people were telling you this, like, you don't know how to draw, you don't know what you're doing, yeah. this isn't what comics look like. Like, did you ever have, like, the thought, like, well, maybe I should try to draw more like the Marvel way or, or something along the way? You know what I mean? Like, So as a young person... You know, like a middle school kid drawing all the time. I was trying to draw the Marvel way. My most uh, original comic I can remember, I was probably in grade five. And during the summer, I labored just, oh, man. And I was convinced of my own brilliance. So here was the basic story here. He's a big, strong guy, okay? And uh, he's purple, and he wears green pants, <laughs> all right? And he's called The Bulk. <laughs> And man, this is going to fly off the It actually, in a way, was my best-selling book because I made three copies and I sold them at school. So in a way, that part's good. But uh, yeah, and you tried to draw the Marvel way. But I was not good at it because I don't have a sensibility. The thing about the Marvel way of drawing or the DC way of drawing, like those house styles, they're built on a certain type of labor of 10 hours a day at the drawing table, no exceptions, right? And if you want to have anything else that you do other than be an illustrator, you can't do it that way. I, mean, I couldn't. But you have a very labor-intensive style in a different sense. Like you're doing your own lettering and inking. Do you yeah, know like you I labor, but so I will put in 10 or 12 hours a day, but I'll end up with writing, colors, illustration. Like I get more out of my labor as a result of not working their way. But was it not a moment where you're like, can't draw Spider-Man how he's supposed to look. I just have to try harder at it. Like, so I did, uh, or did well, you? But but because you didn't really go that route, you were like, you know what? I'm gonna do something different. So the reason I, I went different. So I can draw Spider-Man. So here's the thing. Um, well, I can draw Spider-Man the way he's supposed to be drawn, and I did one as a commission for somebody. Sure. Spider-Man exactly how he's supposed to be drawn, but I get no joy out of doing something the way it has been done. So you learn it, then you're like, I don't like this. I can already do that. I, yeah. Where's the joy in that? I had that same feeling where I won a big award, or not a big award, but I won a, a you know, decent sized like, award for this poem that I wrote for my girlfriend at the time. And she loved this poem. Like she was, gave you the award? No, like I got oh. an award. <laughs> like it was, I got a $500 prize and a plaque and all that stuff. And it was like, you know, exactly the kind of poem that and she loved it and all this stuff and I was like this means nothing to me <laughs> the award the, the, I was like this is to I, like I figured out how to it was like like you say it was this validation so I like it's like validation that I'd figured out how to write the kind of poems that people write and I was right. like doesn't interest me mm -hmm. uh, I, I find I, university papers are of a similar variety once you figure out and at least one of you in this room have been taught the way in which to game that system uh, by me so that you can be sure to get a B plus on papers on subjects that you for sure have not studied or read about right by just following the academic system 
the way it is intended to be done. If you regurgitate the system back at itself, you will always succeed. I find that to be, you know, they talk about academic dishonesty at the university level. I find that to be the most academically dishonest thing that there is. So you're right in that we both have a little bit of operational defiance in that we don't want to do it just because we can. That's not to say that I could do a good, so here's the other thing. But you worked hard to learn it. Yeah, like, but here's the other thing. What? If you want to do a Spider-Man book, right? You have to want to embrace the themes and styles and storytelling that is in a Spider-Man book. I won't thrive in that arena because those aren't of interest to me, right? So it's not me saying that that way of drawing it or that way of expressing yourself is somehow invalid. It's just that we should each do things according to our gifts. And just because I'm, I can be good at math by putting lots of labor into it doesn't mean I should be an accountant, right? Because I won't derive satisfaction in my life just because I can accomplish something. I feel that the accomplishments we have in our life is when we pair up the things we enjoy doing, the things we don't mind working hard at, and the things that we're good at. In that little space where those overlap, if you can carve a career out, then my goodness. Then you can be hit by a bus the next day and still be glad. So I'm going to jump in with some other questions that all... Uh... Big or small, they Big can be small. like stir. Yes. What is, like, in your career, what would you say is, like, the biggest risk that paid off and also blew up in your face drastically? Oh, being a teacher. Oh. <laughs> you nice. worked hard to become a teacher. Yeah, I worked really I hard remember, to become a teacher. Uh, you, you, didn't you not, well you, well, you can tell the story, but you got thrown out of university. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's a whole other story. You, it took you yeah. a while to get into the program. Yeah, so, also. Um, so paraphrasing, okay, so let's just address the question. Uh, something that sort of blew up in my face or something that I, I didn't know would be the way it was is being a teacher. So I wanted to be a teacher. I love teaching. There is almost no joy greater than the trust that can be built from a room full of people who don't know each other, all becoming better and able to go out into the world a little bit better. Like if there's a high watermark in human civilization, I don't know what it is. But education itself gets in the way of that great experience because of the system involved. And so I wanted to build a day for myself where I could write every day, I could illustrate every day, and I could have interactions with people every day. And so I could write and illustrate on my own time, I could teach in my day-to-day, -day. I would have a job that covered all the monthly expenses and needs of my family, and that would be great. And it ran pretty good for about 10 years. And then what happened was, um, as is wont to do, once I had 10, 15 books out, you know, publishers are saying, like, why don't you support them? I'm like, well, I do support them. I made the damn things, right? And they're like, no, you have to be out in the world supporting these books if you want them to reach that next level. Um, so, you know, I was in a hard spot trying to make that decision. And then I had, you know, five family funerals to go to in one year. And that really underlines that the real cost of anything is the amount of time you spend on it. And I just realized that I had already done 10 years. I'd given 10 years to a thousand people and so I'm going to I double down you, I remember you're really kind of struggling with it for a certain period yeah. there and I, I remember my advice to you was like you could just get another teaching job <laughs> like, yeah. Like, yeah you were you, like quit because teaching's easy well relatively speaking yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if that's true well but but I, you, does that answer your question I think you, what you really wanted was related to writing and illustrating though so um, well, that works. To give a, a more cogent answer for the rest of you, maybe, um, the struggle that you're going to have 
if you decide to do something that is creative, is that only you will understand what it's supposed to look like, and you won't be able to convince anybody that it's valid until you've already made it. Telling someone that your book is going to be good, or that it's going to be about this, or that it's going to fit into this reading level, that is valueless, both to a publisher and to an agent. Holding a book and letting them read it and decide, yes, in fact, you can do this thing, right? Your first book will likely be rejected and likely end up being a quote-unquote waste of time. But the time that you actually spent on it will have made you capable of proving to someone that you can write a book, period, which is huge, and that you can deliver something on time, which is huge, and that will open so many doors for you, right? Talent is not the... Isn't, it's actually false, the notion of talent. Talent, like we talk about Wayne Gretzky, right? Oh, the most talented hockey player ever. He traded his childhood to be good at hockey. He worked every day at hockey. So he traded time to be good at this thing. And we're like, wow, what a talented guy, right? That's nonsense, right? What are you willing to trade away, right, for a different opportunity? That's the only thing of value here. The, uh, the thing I found yesterday, where is it? I sent it to the university. Do they know what it is? Uh, you said that you uh, worked as a, as a teacher. I was wondering what you see as most essential to like, an, an individual's growth. What do I see as most essential to an individual's growth as a teacher? Uh, Self-reflection. The ability to look inward at the mistakes and the um, patterns in your own life. That if you can convince a young person that the things that are happening are not happening to them, that they're just happening, and how they respond to those things will change their situation, right? That the world isn't happening to them, that they are happening in the world as well, that you can send people on some pretty great paths, I think. Anyway, does that answer your question? Yeah. Question? Uh, you recently released a uh, baby metal comic. I did. Um, I'm curious, uh, could you tell us a story of how that came to be? Uh, is anyone here familiar with the band Baby Metal? A few, yeah, fervent hands strike the air. Okay, so for those of you who don't know, Baby Metal is a heavy metal band out of Japan. Um, you know, it's an old adage that if you can be big in Japan, then you've made it. So I don't know, maybe that's what he's talking about when he says I've made it. Um, they're a heavy metal band that... So the story of my working with them goes like this. I went to New York Comic Con, and at the aisle across from me was the publisher Z2 Comics. We did not know each other at all. Uh, we got along pretty well, we had a similar sense of humor, and we spent five days together across the aisle from each other. Um, we went out for pizza, Josh Frankel um, knows the best pizza in New York, like legitimately, every New Yorker claims to, I think he may in fact know the truth. And so we went out, no business, talks whatsoever. We just went out all together. My wife was with me at the time and she often doesn't want to hang out with comics publishing folks, but in this particular instance she thought they were funny too. So we went out, we spent some time together, end of story. And then a few months later, um, they had approached Baby Metal about doing a graphic novel. Koba Metal presented them with some work, like a style of work that he wanted to look like. They said, oh my God, we know that guy. We got to figure out how to get in touch with him again. We know that guy. You know, we spent some time with him in New York. Now, it wasn't that Koba showed them my work. He just showed them stuff that was visually similar, 
right? Which is what you do when you're pitching a project. You're often presented a mood board, which is like a bunch of stuff that makes you feel like the way you want the project to look. You give that to the publisher, they go find the people. So that was sort of the long uh, preamble of how I got involved. And then I was told you have three or four months that you can make a few test pages, uh, which was great because I was just about to go on vacation with my family. Uh, we we're going to a music festival. And then I get this phone call where uh, one of the publishers was like, hey, remember when we said we'd give you a long time to work on those test pages? I was like, yeah. Do you think you could have them by tomorrow morning? <laughs> nice. And I was like, like how many pages? Like, not that many, just like five or so. Just to put it in perspective, five would take you how many? How long? Normally, Normally it's a page a day is what you do. Like a page, a labor, you labor for a day and you can produce a page of illustration. They said like, hey, do you think in 24 hours you could produce five of these things that we could show? And the reason being was that they had this sudden opportunity to meet face to face with the, the decision makers involved. And they really wanted to, you know, step up their game. So it meant that I had to step up my game. So I simply told my, and I told them like, well, I'm at a thing with my family and family's gotta come first here. So you can have all the hours between when they go to bed and they wake up, I'll work for you. I'll be on Japan time today. And that's what I did. I, my, you know, we went home, my wife went to bed, and I'll say, I'll see you in the morning. <laughs> and I stayed up working all night and sent them stuff so that they could have it in the meeting the next morning that they were having. And, um, you know, you have, to, I guess the, the point of this, the thread of this whole conversation is you're trading something for something else, right? Uh, you don't eliminate, you have to transmute. So yes, I have the capacity to work quickly, if I can be uninterrupted. Well, no one will interrupt you if they're asleep. So my family was asleep, and all I had to do was stay awake to get it done. And the work was not my best work, but it was, um, they did not require my best work, they required a work that reflected the um, concept that they were presenting. So conceptual art is a lot different than panel-to-panel -panel work. If you have to do five pages of sequential illustration, and you can do that in one day, well, I don't know who you are, you're some sort of god of illustration, because everything has to fit, and all has, each illustration has to be thoughtfully connected to each other illustration. That's not what they were asking me to do. They gave me a broader uh, sort of concept, and they said, make five pieces that fit into this concept, and then I had a lot more freedom to have at her. Um, and then we went to the music festival for the rest of the next day. I did not sleep first, we just went. Right? Yeah, that was a hard day. Yes. Any other questions about that? Yeah. Um, so I see you have a lot of like local like event marketing. Yeah. Do you ever feel kind of like odd like trying to sell your own stuff to people? Yes. So the question uh, for the microphone up close is do you ever feel odd having to be the person who is selling their stuff direct to the individual? That's actually my favorite part. Really? Yeah. Um, because love it or hate it, people feel something. So like if you have your art display set up in a place that people aren't used to seeing that kind of art and they walk by and they have this sour face like you've just farted or something like and they're just trying to get past, I love it because I've overridden their mind, right? Like I've hacked their brain and whether they wanted to or not, they have to be in this world and they don't like it and they can't wait to leave. Sometimes people come in there, they pause in front of it and they're like, wow, I really like, this is a place for me and that also lifts me up. The ones that hurt the most are the people who walk by as if none of it matters, right? The, like, love it or hate it, as long as you feel something, I'm validated as an artist. If you're like, eh, and walk on, right to my heart, like right to the 
the muse is has a finger cut off that day so there's i've given you my kryptonite right just pretend like it doesn't matter at all yes uh you have a really particular illustration style how did you go about developing that and finding that kind of style for yourself uh how did i develop the illustration style so um and they've looked at the first Midnight City books. So if you have like a specific example from there, you might. Yeah, well, uh, well, I'll say is this: process. that when I was first trying to get into education, uh, and I didn't get in the first time, I had the um, great fortune of taking a class with Diane Thornacroft. She had a like a six-hour drawing course, and I got really interested in this this thing, this process called xerography where you try to illust make illustrations out of Xerox copies of existing photographs by manipulating the xerography to create a new piece, and then you collage that thing into a new composition. Uh, I burned up so many of those like cards, you know, those like, oh man, so many. I, pr I probably spent $1,000 on photocopy that year. Um, now, keep in mind, yes, Photoshop existed at this time. It wasn't that I couldn't be doing it that way. It's just that I was fascinated by the physical process of making this stuff. And so for one assignment, I fell into this thing. So school is good in that regards, guys. Sometimes you're pushed out of your comfort zone. You can discover all kinds of new things. Um, but then I realized that illustration in and of itself is the ability to pair one image to another in sequence, right? It's space for time, right, as Scott McCloud says. So you can't just have non sequitur images one after the other and so then I realized well I'll have to pair my love of drawing with my love of collage and then I will try to find a middle ground where I hope that sometimes the viewer can't tell if it's drawn or pulled from a photograph and in some instances what you guys think is a photograph is actually a drawing that I've spent too long on and other times when you're like oh yeah that's just a quick little drawing is actually me cutting up stuff and putting it all together as a collage. So it really depends. Um, yeah. Um, in your book, Midnight City, Corpse Blossom, uh, the character of Lucky Smanalize says there are no superheroes. What do you mean by that? Um, well, there aren't any superheroes, right? Like there's nothing super about what he does. In this particular book, the notion of uh, the plucky, uncorruptible hero right is presented as false right like he does what he does as a power trip you know like he's a veteran who wishes he could still shoot people right and so he puts on a mask and now he gets to shoot people again and they call him a hero right there's nothing particularly super about that everybody gets hung up on the science part which has nothing to do with it they're getting at us to the fiction this kind of connects to a theme i see almost all the time in your work which is which is there's often some point in the story, um, if not directly in the middle of the story, um, where characters discover that things are the absolute opposite of how they appeared to be. So you thought they were a hero, turns out they're a villain. You thought, you know, this you know, monster god was chewing X, but actually was trying to do Y. Like you, you often have these, uh, this, I, you're up, you seem obsessed thematically uh, to me and it's in this book but also some of your other work with the idea of things appearing a certain way but then you look at them from a different perspective and they seem totally different i'm just curious like to know like why you're so drawn to that concept 
that, that kind of relativistic uh, way of looking at things. So to restate your question, what's wrong with me? Well, like, what, what, yeah, in a certain sense, like, why, why the obsessiveness? Do you see that as a obsessive sort of theme in your work? Uh, it is because it's, um, okay, so I've said before that I think that the creative process should be a meditative one, that you, that making art for money is a useless endeavor. Making art for fame is a useless endeavor because by the time it's finished, you're done with it. It may have these other effects once it's in the world, but the actual process of making a thing should be based in self-discovery, right? And one of the things that I find the most fascinating about the world at large is the way that all of us present one way and behave another, right? And so, yes, it's true that that theme is present because it's often on my mind while I'm working on things in the way that even I have to present myself as one thing and then behave another way, right? Like I present myself here as if there's a way to write stories and make things and get them in on time as if this is some sacrosanct way of doing it. But if you tried to do it my way, you would fail. Not because you can't, because I'm somehow special, but because of all the things that are wrong with me that have made me make those choices to do it that way, that might be right with you, that make it okay for you to do it another way. So just to kind of come back to that thematic idea a bit, um, I mean, I said you've got, I mean, in, in one level it's a noir influence also. Right? The, the notion that people aren't purely heroes or villains, right. um, but there's somehow this, everything's living this moral gray area. Um, so can you say more about your, your, your noir influence? Because you see, you see it in this book, you see it in some of the other works. In this book in particular, you seem to have like three big influences, um, you know, golden age comics, and noir, which typically presented a very clean, like good evil dichotomy. Uh, noir, which typically present this you know, breakdown of that um, into this moral gray space and then Lovecraftian in, in which there's a just pure evil there's nothing else good in the cosmos uh, so it's interesting to me that you have these three influences diverging or conver converging here and yet philosophically all those influences are coming from very different places so your question is so, why put them together so, yeah like what kind of drew you to bring those threads together in the first place because I didn't know what would happen if I drew those threads together. I thought it might be fun to try. Um, that's like the high-minded reason, but like if you dig down into it, um, I am somewhat frustrated with the body of comics knowledge presenting the golden age of comics as if it was somehow great, right? It's kind of like make America great again. Like the time you're harkening back to was the time of the most class divide, the most racial divide, right? Like comics, when they first came out in the golden age, like the golden age of comics, most of the comics are propaganda tools that are just soaked in the most vitriolic racism that you can imagine, and classism, as you can imagine. Like Batman just gets to beat up poor people. Like that's all he does in those early comics, right? Um, if you look at how, uh, the Chinese people or the Japanese people or the Russian people or any person of color is depicted in early Golden Age comics, you will be sick to your stomach. And so I wanted to take a bunch of those characters from that time and make them suffer, right? Like I wanted to bring those characters forward and make them suffer in a way for their crimes by placing them in a horror story written by someone who actually came before that time, right? Who like prefigured it. So H.P. Lovecraft prefigured this cosmic horror, this idea that all your ideas of good and bad and right and wrong are just 
silly. And it all is going to amount to nothing. And so in a way, I tried to punish the golden age of comics by making them survive an H.P. Lovecraft story. And uh, spoiler alert for anyone who is interested in getting the other two volumes. You know, you come for the heroes, but you stay to watch them die. It kind of connected in there is this question that number people are you, you write yourself in one of your prefaces I, uh, that world building is one of the greatest parts of creating a speculative fiction story so uh, Mike the question I think is how do you actually do that though like how do you actually build a world um, what are some of the things like some you would practical do? what are the practical what things are, like practical ways you would build a world like you know, build out the so, so could you give some examples of like once you have that sort of basic idea now, this premise, right. I'm going to bring these Golden Age characters into a Lovecraftian nightmare. Okay, well, let's not... How much time do we have? Do we have time for this? Let's not have me talk about how I would do it. Let's do it right now, right? So let's pick a genre. Someone pick a genre. Horror. Horror. Plus, now give me an opposing genre. Science fiction. Horror, science fiction. That's more parallel. So horror, science fiction. Give me something opposing. Romance or comedy. Okay, so if we're going to write a romantic comedy, right, set in a horror science fiction setting, right, those rules that we have set for ourselves by establishing genre come with certain tropes, right? Things that people will assume and become your shorthand. So what are some shorthands of a romantic comedy? What are some things that always happen? Someone falls in love. They fall in love. With whom? Uh, well, depends on what kind of romantic comedy you're looking for. If it's heterosexual, then a man falls in love with a woman, or a woman falls in love with a man. Okay. And who are they? Are they usually the person that is best suited to them? Uh, a lot of the time, no. No. So there's a trope, right? So you have someone who falls in love with someone who is unsuited to them. Now let's look at that through the lens of horror and science fiction. What are the two most unsuited things that could fall in love in a horror or science fiction? Right. What are some tropes of science fiction? Yes. It's like the monster, like the villain, and then like a hero. Right. So you could have your let's like if it was a slasher film set on a space station, right? And the uh, slasher now, if we follow these tropes, has someone that they're actually in love with, right? And they're the rom-com elements are happening with them and this other person, while the other person is telling them like, "Oh my God, there's a killer on this station," <laughs> right? And now we've built a world, right? We've built a world by simply adhering to the genre tropes. That part's easy. Ideas are worthless, right? Executing that idea. If every one of us in this room went away and spent the month doing 2,000 words a day, all the novels that we turned in, right, would be different, very different. And all of them could be sent to the same agency and maybe four or five of them could be published because they'd be so different you wouldn't even know that it came from the same rule set because the secret ingredient is the actual labor, right? People forget that there, between the idea and the execution is maybe a thousand or ten thousand hours of actual labor, right? And a lot changes. Um, the way to think about it for me is that movement gives shape to form and I stole that from Leonardo da Vinci, right? But a fish is the shape that a fish is because of how it must move in water, right? And you can't separate the one from the other. So once you establish the rules, right, we've established our rom-com meets horror science fiction, the story takes its own shape without us having to do much about it. 
just sort of analytically thinking through like what's gonna happen, right. what would have to happen, yeah, if you know for the killer to to, to fall in love. How could a killer, right, fall in he, love? He or she fall in love with? Well, what how if would he try to get that girl? Let's say in this example. Yeah, right. What if? Uh, so here, I just thought of one. Like a cat leaving. I think of like the cat leaves. You know dead birds for you there you got it display. so imagine you had an alien intelligence that observed that a cat leaves dead birds for its master as a show of love so this woman now suddenly has all these dead people being presented to her in this space station constantly it's like she's horrified by all these like she turns the corner as like a person gussied up. Yeah. But, but it's supposed to be like a Valentine. <laughs> this is what I mean, right? If you didn't yeah. understand that a Valentine, like val for Valentine's Day, we give people hearts. If you didn't, <laughs> if you didn't understand, right? If you didn't understand what that meant, if you took that too literally, now you've got a horror movie, right? In fact, I think we just came up with a pretty great one. That's a pretty good premise. Right? Casey, I don't want to blow smoke up your butt here, but I think you found a new species. Yeah, right. Hey, it could happen. New species are discovered every day. Once you have the premise, in some ways, like you're paying attention to the premise. Yeah. So with Midnight City, you've got your core sort of initial premise. Yeah. Um, and, and which, in case it isn't clear, <laughs> is um, what? oh, it's not clear. Um, the you want me to tell them the premise? Well, I mean, of I the could book? tell them, but you can. You I can. want them to tell me what the premise of the book is. That's more fun. I actually get creative writers students to do this. As usually in the editing process, <laughs> right? I say like, give somebody your story and have them tell you the plot. Yeah, and it's a great exercise. Like I had to present the plot to the publisher and then present the book back and then say, hey, this is a different plot than you sold us, and be like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, so that's fine. Does anyone want to heart like give me a sum up? Okay, summation. Uh, I got that. Uh, what you're trying to say is superheroes aren't real; they're actually vigilantes and henceforth criminals. Okay, so that is a function of the plot, a function of the plot, but is that what the story is about? Right, and this is what your professor is trying to have you learn how to determine, the difference between thematic. plot and meaning, yeah. right? What happens in a story, and a way to think about it <clears throat> for you guys who are thinking about writing, I'll steal this from Joss Whedon, he has a problematic thing going on in the world right now, but his writing is good. He separates screenwriting between movements and moments, right? A movement is what happens in the plot, and a moment is a moment between characters that makes you feel something important, right? So when a professor is asking what a book is about, he's saying, don't tell me what happened in it, the movements. Tell me what the moments meant. What are they really about? So the movements in this story are like people in masks fighting monsters. Like, that's pretty dumb, right? But the moments underneath it are what the story is actually about right yeah it has to be really generic like things aren't what they seem yeah it's pretty simple i told you writing's easy <laughs> right like things aren't as they seem like it's not a profound judgment right it's just an exploration of things aren't what they seem by way of golden age characters fight hg wells and hg uh hp lovecraft monsters mm -hmm. right i set my parameters and then i do a very simple story within that and see what happens. You've got some very clear tropes functioning too, like in, like in horror, for example, you often have this passage space between, uh, like literally underground, in this case, they're going to the cellar. Yeah. Uh, and you know, as if entering like some hellish underworld where now everything, as you say, everything's kind of reversed. Everything's, you know, not as it seemed before. 
uh, all the children are there, but then other monsters. Right. Um, you know, in some ways, it's a very clear like trope shift. In, in other ways, like I th- um, yeah, that part you're talking about, I thought I was being super transparent um, in that, like this notion of superheroes take on superstitious elements so that people are afraid of them right they put on they dress up like monsters they run around in the dark rawr, be as scared of me if you're a criminal right and then they face off against actual supernatural elements and so i literally had the way into that like the secret layer that is the secret layer of the superhero underneath that secret layer was the world of the monsters which is uh you know not particularly clever but it made for a fun literally like getting under the layer just going one layer under but in terms of world building i think there's where you've got like a parallel you've got these two genres let's say the superhero he has a secret layer underneath batman's got his layer underneath the house yeah and then you've got the horror story where like again the monster has a layer yeah uh, and you're going into often down into the earth where the monsters dwell or have come from etc and so you're in some ways i think your world building there is you're noticing Okay, there's this parallels. So how do I bring them together? Yeah. How do you, what about another example? So another example here is a number of people have questions about the red phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how did you come up with the element of the red phone and like actually build that into the world? I stole it from Adam West Batman. Right? It's me making a direct reference to Adam West Batman. The red phone would ring, right? And it's like, oh, it's the commissioner, right? Um, and I thought, so the, the notion here is that superheroes are a lie the notion of superheroes in and of themselves as they exist in comics in the world of midnight city is just pr so there are comics published in the world and you get to see those covers that's what the cover interrupts are you're seeing the pr of that world how they present superheroes to everyone else right vampire detective right well that's a lie right he's not a vampire at all he's actually a human who's been hollowed out by an alien, right, so that he can feed on other humans, but they present him as a hero, right? And so it's just sort of digging out and hollering out those tropes, pardon the expression. Yes? I was just thinking, because the superheroes, they use, like, masks to cover up their real identity, could it be like that the Midnight City is covering up the monsters that are, like, under the ground? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, like I said, it's not deep, right? It's just fun, right? Like the, the horror isn't about whether or not everyone can, everyone wants to fight monsters. It's that we all have a monster that we fought, right? You can put whatever label, you know, you can put addiction on it. You can put your family strife on it. You can put your, uh, the way your horrible professor will not recognize your genius. Whatever the monster is that you're fighting, right? Horror allows us to transpose that experience and for a short time escape into someone else's suffering right and know that you also suffer right so yeah midnight city is um it was more complicated to put together than the actual story itself is that is presented i think i think the i don't think you should minimize the mask idea though like because it is in some ways like a very again a simple element of and commonality of the superhero stories then like to take the the idea of a mask covering a face and like hiding the, like masks are interesting in terms of identity because of course on one hand they hide an identity and of course again masks common in horror movies yeah. uh, but masks you know they hide an identity but 
in a horror story, they actually reveal the pro- true identity. Right. And so you have this kind of doubleness of a mask already, and then extending it out to the city itself as a sort of mask yeah. um, for this you know, sunken city, in a manner of speaking. Like, it's a very clean uh, uh, development from one to the other, but I, I don't think it's necessarily a simplistic one. Uh, because, again, you do have, like, a lot of the same sort of um, notions Okay, so a practical element for writers in the room or creatives in the room is that um, making something is easy. Refining it down to its base elements is the is the important part, right? When you're representing it. So while it is not explicitly stated that Midnight City is the mask over the ancient city, right? It is intentional that those are present, right? To reflect the notion of masks throughout the story. Right, so that if someone then asks you why this, why that, and that someone could be a reviewer, an editor, the publisher, any of those things, why you've made certain decisions in the story, you must have a cogent reason for it, or it will be edited out. Right, and so why books develop themes is because the author uh, is fighting to maintain the core of their idea through the editorial and publishing process, which is very difficult because everyone wants to tell you how better to have it fit into the marketplace, how better to have it fit into present day conversations, how better to have it fit into the genre conventions. Everyone is having you carve away something. And so you want to have stuff that you're willing to carve away and stuff that you're willing, you're unwilling to carve away and you need a reason for it. And so the reason that authors usually use is that it's thematically tied to the main story. I've heard of people, this is kind of a screenwriting trick, just, um, in screening especially people are trying they have to come in with their fingers and they have to change things oh yeah but uh, so a common like well you and I have both been that we wrote trick, for a show a trick for screenwriting is when you turn the draft in you put in put in some things that you will just you, you do want to actually take out <laughs> you know, that you know are no good and that you then will take out then the person then the, so there are like things that they can point to and go oh change that you know great idea boss you take out this thing you always intended to take out and that way they don't touch this other thing that really matters the danger is the danger is they like it yeah the (laughs) danger is they're like ooh, more of this yeah that's the danger yeah um so it's it's increasingly why in creative fields you see people who work with the same people over and over again right there's a danger to that because then you end up in an echo chamber but there's a benefit to it in that you don't have to constantly fight for your ideas because people trust you. I know you pride yourself on being the outsider, Stokely. But aren't you tired of being something you're not? Well, there's a question related to that, which is, you know, what are some of the writers uh, that you, writers and artists that you know and that, you know, maybe are friends with who actually have had some sort of influence? Like, like what have you learned from like from people around you like from my direct yeah there's a number of questions about kind of like how do you have you found like one like how did you get connected to like a community of other people around you doing things and two like what do you kind of like what have you kind of learned from them like who are the specific people that you maybe have okay so i think that boils down to a question about like how do i break in Right, like how do I get at things? Uh, If you are trying to get at a community for your own benefit, that community will leave you out, right? I mean, think of your own friend group, right? Whoever you hang out with on a regular basis, 
If there's someone who suddenly was like, hey, can I come? Hey, can I come? Hey, can I come? Hey, can I borrow your car? Hey, can I sleep in your house? Hey, can I wear your sweater? You'd be like, oh, get out of here, man, right? You don't want that person. However, if someone comes to you and says, hey, I heard you're moving on Thursday, I'll help, right? And they have no wish to get anything more than presenting themselves to you to help, then you are more willing to provide them with help when they require it. And so uh, many years ago, and you were party to this, is how we actually got to know each other. Mm-hmm. Um, we were part of Dennis Cooley's advanced creative writing class. It ended, I didn't want it to end. I just thought I was getting so much from this group of people. The class itself was secondary to the group of people. So I said, hey everybody, this Wednesday night writing class, let's have it at my house every week now instead. And you know, 10, 15 people from that class showed up every week for years to workshop their writing. And you know, of that list, five of us ended up winning Manitoba Book Awards. My way into the community was more kind of connected to that class in a different way. It was that, you know, kind of getting this community that revolved around your, this writing group you, you continued. But the other thing was we had, if you, I don't know if you remember, we had to do a chapbook project in that class. Oh, yeah, that's right. And yeah, so yeah, yeah. I did a chapbook uh, and I, you know, published a bunch of copies to give away to, I thought, well, I'll use this to give away to people. Yeah. And then, um, I th- then once I had done one, I was like, well, maybe I should do more of these. That was your Martian Press um, thing, right? Martian Press. Yeah. So at the first Ooh, chapbook of the Martian Press is my own work, but then yeah. what I did after that was like I was like because I was thinking along the lines you were talking about. I was like, it's like, you know, it's good to like publish something on my own. I can show people and you know stuff and kind of they can kind of get a sense of who I am and what my yeah. work is. I go, but but really I think it would be more interesting or to other people and like useful to the community would be like if I published other people yeah. rather than just publishing myself all the time. Well, so that's the thing. So I started just publishing the people in that group and other people around. Yeah. Me. And so, like, the Martian press very quickly. I mean, it kind of became just a... So in some ways, like, my way into, like, the broader community was, like, becoming a publisher. Right. <laughs> and it's like, so now... Okay, no so the way to characterize I, like, that, though... In there, like, trying to get yeah. connected. You're to trying people. to give something to but other people, people instead. Yeah, yeah, and it's more like... Um, and, like, people have a reason to, like, talk to me if rather than, like... Okay, but just the, trying to get something. The reason that writer's group worked the way it did was because they were from all kinds of different voices. There were screenwriters, there were poets, there were fiction writers, there were nonfiction writers, there were people who wrote from all avenues. And we had the one rule that being nice didn't help you get better, but that we weren't interested in talking about the story in general, only the notes that you asked for. So when we shared stories, the rule was, you hand out whatever work you want to hand out to be read for the next week. And on it, you'd have a list, a small list, of specific things you wanted feedback on. And we would only discuss those specific things so that it became useful to you directly. You write a story, you're not sure if the dialogue works. So you make a few notes specifically about the dialogue. Well, the poet tells you a better word to use every time, right? Every time the poet tells you a better word you can use, right? The screenwriter tells you about the pacing of your dialogue every time, right? The fiction writer is like, you know what, actually this this is this isn't any, it's not even useful to you. It doesn't serve the plot, right? The nonfiction writer is like, hey, did you check those sources even? Like, does this character even know what they're talking about? And suddenly you have a specific part of your story being workshopped specifically by the skill set of specific individuals based on their strengths. 
And man, our, and you don't have to take it. Like you don't have to agree with them or even make the changes, but you know specifically how and why they want the changes made. And now you understand how readers are. Every reader comes to the story with a different thing. And you get to decide which part of it is you want. If you only share your horror stories with other horror writers, you will, your stories will actually get worse, right? If you share your horror stories with people who write a vast variety of things, your stories will get better because the skill set has expanded. We have time for maybe a few more questions. Yeah. If you'll have question. Yeah. Um, in in those like peer review uh, sessions that you had, where you had like uh, other people uh, like read read your stuff and and uh, critique it on different points that you would specifically outline, would you like allow them to specifically ask for like intentions behind different things that were put down, or was it just like? They just looked at it and analyzed it for what it was. Yeah, so remember, at this point, we weren't strangers to each other, right? right? We had spent a whole year together workshopping stuff, and the people who showed up again after the class was done wanted that workshop. So you kind of knew who was, like, by the end of this class, right, you kind of know what each of you likes to talk about, right? And you won't realize how well you know what each of you wants to talk about until you leave the classroom setting and sit together to workshops and work. Right, so um, we didn't have to set those kinds of parameters because we kind of knew it anyway. I think there was a rule in the class we took. I, if, if I remember right, maybe you can correct me. I think the professor, Dennis Cooley, who taught the class had a rule that when people were getting feedback, they weren't allowed to defend themselves. Yeah, you couldn't defend yourself. You, you could take notes, but they couldn't answer any yeah. like question. Like, Unless they were asked a direct question, yeah. they couldn't answer. Yeah, and that was, an, that was a, such an insightful thing to learn from an, from a writer who had been around and suffered the slings and arrows mm -hmm. um, so much more is that you must allow people their point of view into your writing, undefended. You cannot be like, well, that's not what I meant, right? Because if that's what you saw, then it's there, right? You might not have intended it, but it's there, right? Or they're just wrong, but, it, but in that case, it still doesn't matter. It doesn't if matter if they're wrong, wrong. It doesn't matter. Because if they're wrong, they still were wrong based on this data set. I got a review once and the reviewer said, I had made a reference to Kafka. Kafka is a castle which is run by Count Westeros. Very small piece of trivia. Even a Kafka fan would not necessarily know Kafka's Count West. Count West West is the ruler of the only castle. Only you would know that. Um, at, well, not only me, but like, it's not, it's not a common thing that you would expect someone to know. Right. Anyway, so this reviewer didn't know that. So I made the reference to Count West West. The reviewer didn't know what Count West West was, so they Googled it fine reasonable thing to do they didn't add the word kafka so what you get if you google count west west without adding the word kafka is there's some guy who writes harry potter fan fiction who calls himself count west west and then they just stop their google there like oh jonathan must be referencing in in this poem by the way which is explicitly about kafka's the castle um they're like oh he must be referencing count west west the harry potter fan fiction writer why is he doing that that's stupid and so they write in the review like it's kind of dumb that he's like <laughs> referencing this Count West West. I'm like, what, but it's like, what theirs. do you even say though? Once it's published, once it's in the world, but it's, it's no not getting mad. I still kind of it's not yours it. anymore. <laughs> There's no point, right? Love it or hate it, it's yours now. I'm done with it. I'm on to other things. I don't care if you hate that. You already bought it. But like in that scenario, <laughs> like, like the extreme end of like somebody's reaction is like they're literally wrong about everything. But like. Who cares? Like well, it right. doesn't matter. So are we. 
but it, like it doesn't like it's fundamentally like you can't do anything with that feedback we're wrong too like most of what we said is nonsense they <laughs> had to pay to be here right right if anyone should well, be upset it's these people it's I always get a writer in the class even if it's just literature class like this not a creative writing class because I think it's really useful to understand um, that literature is pr not produced like in a vacuum in, no. a, in a tower like it's produced it, there's material considerations and, and as you say like you have a creative vision and you're pursuing creative vision sure but there's also like these things that go into it like oh especially in comics where it's like oh I've got this thing I want to happen I want it to be a surprise well should I put it I guess it has to be on an even numbered page. Yeah, your surprises have to always be on the page turn. <laughs> so how do Otherwise I like, they're not surprises. Or yeah. like if I want it to be fast paced, well in, in comics to some degree the pace is a function of how fast people are turning pages. Yeah. And like uh, so there's like material like in, in like material considerations that come into, you know, the uh, artistic considerations. Like like they're very connected and I think, and even just the, the that I question, like, how tired are you when you write these pages? Like, that stuff matters really specifically and materially in terms of what work gets created. And then additionally, like, even historically, like, where you have, say, women not as represented in certain genres because they can't literally afford to be doing this work right. in certain scenarios. Yeah. Um, and I think like it's important to understand that sort of thing. You know, even I mean, it's easy when you look back at Shakespeare or something, and you're like, okay, well, you know, he knew this guy. <laughs> right. Maybe that guy like helped him figure out this thing. Uh, but sometimes people don't even recognize that. Right. Well, every creative work is a compromise, right? And it's it's just true. It's why so many books are dedicated to the editor. Right, because yeah. you are everything is a you have a vision and it has to survive the process of publication. And if it comes out halfway close to what you are, you're happy. And if it doesn't, maybe you're unhappy. But if you cannot, if you're a person who is un, incapable of compromise, you are incapable of living a creative life as a job. Um, period. Right, you have to be willing to compromise. Um, but you should also have some things that you will not compromise. Some things that are deal breakers, right? That once you agree to make a book, you're willing to compromise only so far before you're willing to break the deal. And I've been in a position where I've had books almost published and then if we're gonna break the deal, then I'm out, right? I'd rather be not paid, right? And keep the work than right, be paid and have a work that is not representative of what I want into the world. Well, with that, uh, thanks very much uh, for thanks coming. Everybody. and. Uh...